So a friend of mine that's an atheist called me up and said, let's do lunch, but I don't want to talk about Jesus. And I'm like, okay, your choice. Where do you want to go? He said, why don't we meet at uh, uh, Bob Evans and Oaks? Have you eaten at Bob Evans and Oaks? It is, uh, it's an Ohio restaurant, so all Christians should eat at Bob Evans and Oaks. It, uh, they have a wildfire chicken salad. I love, I love eating this, this, this salad whenever we go there. So I meet my friend for lunch. He's just so much smarter than me. He's just an incredibly bright guy. And uh, so we talk politics. We talk football. He's a crazy Eagles fan. And then eventually, in the middle of the lunch, he says, what do you think happens after we die? And I said, you don't want to talk about religion. And I was like, well, what do you think? I'm like, well, you don't. I was like, what do you think happens when we die? And he puts his fork down, and he looks, and he points at my salad, and he said the exact same thing that happened that, to that head of lettuce. We're in the second week of a series called The Case for Christ, and we're using the movie and the book uh, to sort of shape where the sermons are going to be going. Uh, it is the story of about a guy named Lee Strobel, who's a, an award-winning journalist in Chicago whose wife becomes a Christian, and in order to save her from these kooky, weird religious people, he sets out on a two-year journey to prove that Christianity is false. In recent years, there's been an explosion of the nuns, not like nuns from a monastery, that'd be kind of funny, but the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who check the box, none when they're asked on surveys for their religious affiliation. No religion, no belief in any power or afterlife or anything. Out of 8 billion people on the planet, all of the countless innumerable uh, solar systems and universes throughout the world, I myself as this one person have all truth figured out. For example, in 2013, the Harris Poll found that 23% of all Americans have forsaken religion altogether. 23%. That was an increase from 2007, where only 16%. A 2015 Pew Research Center poll found that 36% of millennials, those born after 1980, are nuns. And what the nuns share is this mindset, this belief, this certainty that there is nothing, you can't know it, it's beyond our comprehension. The people who believe in God are, are people who have skewed the evidence. They, they need something to be real. Unlike these people, I am just absolutely certain I don't need to live my life this way. What we're doing in this series, The Case for Christ, in the three weeks leading up, is we're looking at three stories of people that had barriers between them and Jesus. And the barrier we're going to look at today is the same barrier so many of us had before we became Christians or that we have right now represented in this room. So Acts chapter 7 begins this story at the very end of a man that you probably would connect really well with if you consider yourself one of the nuns. It says this, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Let me just pause and say, our story picks up, Jesus had been crucified, raised from the dead, the early church started, and throughout Jerusalem, 
um, religious leaders began to persecute Jesus' followers just like they persecuted Jesus. One of them was a man named Stephen, whom they took outside of the town, literally picked up rocks, and pelted him to death. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and more deeply for him, but Paul, or Saul, began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Saul went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that was the name that they gave themselves, the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem where they would be summarily executed. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he didn't eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The, Lord's, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. And in a vision he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he's come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on his name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and the kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. He was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And then Paul, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All who heard him were astonished. And they asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on, his, on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. What's the barrier that Paul faced? Saul's barrier was this. 
Sometimes we're convinced we're right when we're absolutely wrong. Have you ever met someone like that? Like just absolutely, just convinced that they're right when they're absolutely wrong. How is it you can go from murdering people for something that you believe to turn around and actually then proclaiming the very thing that you tried to exterminate? One of my favorite um, writers is a guy named G.K. Chesterton. He was a philosopher and literary critic from England that lived um, at the turn of the century, late 1900s and early, early the 20th, 20th century. He, uh, G.K. Chesterton left the Christian faith. He was raised as a Christian as a kid and then completely blew it off and said, I'm going to go on a, an exploration. I'm going to find out what religion is true, if any. What ideology and system best explains the world? And ironically, after a period of searching, G.K. Chesterton came back to Christianity. He said, it was as if there was a man that, was, that stood on the shore of England and said, I'm going to sail off and find the promised land. And after being gone for a couple years, seeing in the distance, above the waves, this crest of a little bit of land, and then going up and then setting his foot on the shore and saying, I found it, only to discover that he was actually back in England. He said that's what it was like to leave Christianity and then to uh, purposely go and search for it with stringent analysis and realize that Christianity, the very thing that I left, is the thing that provides the solution. Now, that's not why I'm sharing this. G.K. Chesterton pointed out something that I want to share with those of you who are antagonistic to Christianity. Uh, let's say uh, you were brought here by your wife or your husband. Um, maybe your kids got dragged into, you know, uh, religion, and you're here and you're checking it out, and you're just certain that this is nice. Like, like you're, it's the the values are important. Um, being honest and loving and that sort of thing. And if it reinforces that, hey, you know, you'll just, you'll, 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 you'll make do with the rest of the stuff. G.K. Chatterson said that the, this thinking that we have, he called it the thinking of the madman. Let me read what he said. He said, everyone who has had the misfortune to talk with people in the heart or on the edge of mental disorder knows that their most sinister quality is a horrible clarity of detail, a connecting of one thing with another in a map more elaborate than a maze. If you argue with a madman, it is either, either extremely probable that you will get the worst of it, for in many ways his mind moves all the quicker for not being delayed by the things that go with good judgment. He is not hampered by a sense of humor or by charity, or by the dumb certainties of experience. He is the more logical for losing certain sane affections. Indeed, the common phrase for insanity is, in this respect, a misleading one. The madman is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything except his reason. Such is the madman. He is in the clean and well-lit prison of one idea. He is sharpened to one painful point. He is without healthy hesitation, 
and healthy complexity. And that explains what my friend, that, that explains my friend at Bob Evans, that explains Lee Strobel, that explained me before I became a Christian, and that might explain you. See, I think underneath this, like people, I honestly, because I've been doing this for a long time, that whenever someone is objecting to Christianity and they start throwing out um, uh, what we would call Cartesian linear logic, um, arguments based on this fact and this and this and this and this and this, it's a smokescreen. Because there's enough substantive data to be able to give mental assent to the belief of Jesus. That what really is going on underneath it are two things. And the two things are fears, two fears. And the first fear that exists is a fear of what your friends and your family will think if you take Jesus seriously. Right? Truly, most, most people who are skeptics, what they're really fearing is not that they're going to believe something that isn't true. It's that when they do believe it, they're going to get really strange and they don't want to be strange because they want to hang out with their drinking buddies and they don't want people to make fun of them. And what I want to say is that for those of you who have that fear, you have to understand that there's a big difference for there's a big difference between being disliked for the right reasons and being disliked for the wrong reasons. Let's say, for instance, how many of you drive Volkswagen Beetles? Okay? Let's just say for a moment someone goes out and buys a Volkswagen Beetle. Nice car. And uh, they start talking about Volkswagen Beetles wherever they go. Not in a nice way, but in a condescending way. Oh, what do you drive? Oh, you drive a Toyota? I drive a Beetle. They start telling people they should own a beetle. They start telling people that they're evil if they don't own a beetle. They make fun of other cars whenever they're with other people. They start forwarding emails about Volkswagen beetles. Whenever someone says something profound and meaningful, they'll say, praise beetles. <laughs> they may even get a Volkswagen beetle bumper sticker, maybe a Volkswagen beetle t-shirt. They listen to only VW beetle radio stations, right? They may belittle people, right? When something goes wrong in their life, that's because you don't own a beetle. They get a bracelet, WWBD, what would beetles do, right? And everyone in the room would acknowledge that there's absolutely nothing wrong with Volkswagen beetles. But there is something wrong with being obnoxious. And so listen, if your fear is that you're going to get weird, you need to understand, you may get weird but it has nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus was loved by everyone that he hung out with that was far from God. Right? Our goal as Christians is to become more like Jesus. If you become more like Jesus, the people that you're hanging out with, your friends and your drinking buddies and all of your non-Christian friends, they're going to love you. But the people who are going to hate you are the nutty religious Christians. But the people that are your friends that don't know Jesus are going to love you. They're going to realize that there's something different about you. There's a change that's taking place. The hollowness that used to be there, there's a hope. You're going to love that. People aren't going to think you're weird. You're not going to have enough time in your schedule because people want to be with you because you have something that they want. 
Here's the other issue. And this is a legitimate fear that honestly I can't help out with. It's the fear of you're going to have to give up control. And this one is in fact true. When we make Jesus the leader and the forgiver of our lives, you are giving up all control of your life. All control. The difference is that what you're not giving up is control. What you're gaining is competent leadership and direction. How many planes have you ever been on in your life? Count them up real fast. How old were you? Lean over the person next to you and tell them how old you were when you first went on a plane. All right, I was 13 uh, when I went on my first plane. Um, I remember banking. We were going into the Detroit airport. I'll never forget it. It was, it was extraordinary. And I have been, since then, from 13 now to today to my mid-30s, I have been on so <laughs> many planes. I have been on so many planes. But let me tell you, I have never one time, not one time ever, in all of my time being on a plane, have I ever gone to the airport? You know, I've got my, my rolling luggage with me. I got my ticket. I'm in zone four. Let's go. I get in my seat, and that's right. I'm pulling up. I'm getting into the plane. Not one time as I'm going right to my seat did I ever think to myself, I'm going to veer left and go into the cockpit and say, I got this. Right? Never. Not one time have I ever said, I want to fly the plane because I want to get where I'm going and I want to be safe. I want the pilot to be the person that knows more about flying than I ever could to get us there. And it is the exact same way about Jesus. People who are the nuns, people who are so certain, right? they're looking to other human beings for how to make their life work. For instance, my friend, when we were at Bob Evans, so he tell, he's telling me that what happens is you die and you decompose in the ground like a head of lettuce. And I asked him, well, what are you basing your life on? And he said, Gandhi. I'm like, this is hysterical. You're the guy that paints his face head to toe and goes to Eagles games. You're wearing jerseys. You don't know anything about Gandhi. He was like, I, I, saw, I saw a special on him. I saw a special. I saw a documentary. He's absolutely amazing. And that Gandhi guy was into peace and loving everybody and being chill and everybody do their own thing. I was like, you don't know the first thing about Gandhi. And you're calling yourself a disciple of Gandhi. He was like, oh, yeah, I'm a disciple of Gandhi. And I said, listen, I, here's one, just one little thing about Gandhi. I mean, we all appreciate what Gandhi did for liberating his people. But did you know that Gandhi practiced a, a, an ancient Hindu spiritual practice called Brahmacharya? He was like, no. And I said, Brahmacharya is when Hindu holy men would, would um, have their disciples go into the community and they would select beautiful underage women. They would bring them to the Hindu priest where the Hindu priest would overnight would strip all of their clothes off. They would strip all of the clothes off of the young lady and then they would be uh, placed in a bed together. They would put the covers over them and then they would shut the door. And the goal was 
by morning, the Hindu priest wouldn't have molested the young girl. And so when you get to the morning and the disciples come back, the Hindu priest can say, I did it. I'm good. I don't know what you call that in India, and here we have a name for that. It's called pedophilia. It will get you 30 years in prison. And I'm telling my friend, you're basing your life off this guy. That's literally the best you've got. Let me read some names to you. Buddha, Krishna, Baluulu, Confucius, Plato, Socrates, Moses, Karl Marx, Aristotle, Darwin, Hume, Thucydides, Rousseau, Ptolemy, Plutarch, Newton, Einstein, Nietzsche, Caesar, Gandhi, Zoroaster, Maimonides, Descartes, and Voltaire. What do all of these people have in common? They made outstanding contributions to the intellectual or religious thought of their day. Some of them made far-reaching contribution to the human condition, and all of them are sinful, and all of them are dead. And when we talk about placing our faith and trust in Jesus as competent direction, we're talking about the person that has only lived, the only person that has ever lived a perfect life. No one doubts that. A perfect life and has conquered death. He's the one you will encounter if you open yourself up to it. This is why Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Christ, said, in short, I didn't become a Christian because God promised I would have an even happier life than I had as an atheist. He never promised any such thing. Indeed, follow him would inevitably bring divine demotions in the eyes of the world. Rather, I became a Christian because the evidence was so compelling that Jesus really is the one and only Son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead. That meant following him was the most rational and logical step I could possibly take. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you came to earth. Thank you that you were perfect. For us simply to say we're none of the above, or we're going to find our hope in something here. Thank you for the gift that you make available to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.